Welcome to the Anderson Business Advisors Podcast, the nationally recognized preferred provider for asset protection and tax planning in the nation. This show is for investors and business owners looking to save on taxes and build long-term wealth with Toby Mathis, an attorney, author, business owner, and a featured instructor at Anderson's Tax and Asset Protection event held throughout the country. Enjoy the show. All right, guys, you are at Tax Tuesday. My name is Toby Mathis. And I'm Jeff Webb. And Jeff looks really enthused today. I'm looking over at you. It's like, oh, my God. He's inching away from me because I've been gone for a long time, and he's convinced that I'm bringing back. Who knows what? Yeah, different strains of weird diseases. And just so you know, I flew American. I did fly Delta. All right, let's jump in. Tax Tuesday. I guess we're not supposed to make a lot of things, but I still have a sense of humor. Ask questions. You'll see in the Q&A, we have a whole bunch of folks on. We have Matthew. We have Patty on. We have Dana. We have Christos. We have Elliot, tax attorney. We have Ian. CPA? CPA. Gosh, he's a rock star. Pile CPA? Yeah. Yay. Enrolled agent, even better. No offense to the CPAs. Mm-hmm. And then... Uh, we have a whole bunch of folks on that are going to answer your questions. We have Troy on who oversees our whole bookkeeping department. So like, if you have questions, put it in that question and answer. If you have comments, put it in the chat. So there's a question and answer and there is a chat. Send the questions in. If you have questions, you're sitting around at midnight and you just have a tax question that's just burning into your skull, send it over to us at Tax Tuesday at Anderson Advisors. It's absolutely free. And we will get you a response. If you need a super detailed, like it's your scenario that's specific, you got to engage either as a platinum or as a tax client. Otherwise, we just answer general questions on taxation just because it's fun. Yes. Sometimes you're like, ah, taxes. All right. So this is supposed to be fast, fun, and educational. Uh, <laughs> see, I'm here to see if Jeff can keep Toby on. Why, Toddy? That's what. Uh, Calls me Toady. That's what uh, Michael's kid, <laughs> Mikey oh. Jr., calls me. <laughs> Hi, Toady. All right. So we want to give you. Uh, we want to give back and help educate people. That's enough. It's hard enough right now. In fact, the IRS is thirty-five million tax returns behind by their own admission, and they managed to answer yes, answer three percent of the calls that were placed last year live. Three percent. That's pretty good. <laughs> Anyway, so if you need an answer to a question, don't call the IRS. I think that's what they're saying. I would lose my job. I always look at it like this. My brother, I remember he once said, he, he's still married to this is what's sad. He goes, I, I just wanted to make sure I didn't, you know, about the whole putting the toilet seat down. So he said every time he saw a toilet seat, he'd pee on it. <laughs> and he goes, that, that cures it. That toilet seat's never down anymore. <laughs> so I guess if you want to... If you're going to fail, fail up, right? So, like, let's just make sure. We don't want the taxpayers calling us. We're busy. We're busy leaking documents to the ProPublica. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to get I'm just teasing. Sorry, sorry, Mr. Bezos. <laughs> That's true. He was, he was uh, sky high today. or in, He was into the atmosphere. Right. I think there were some people rooting for the rock to keep going. All right. We got a whole bunch of questions due, and uh, it's doubtful that I'm going to stay on track today, by the way. Just in case you guys are taking the over-under, I would definitely take the over today. It's been a, been, hey, see, everyone is, is Rolando's, he's, he's in Miami. Where's everybody at today? Just kind of go into chat, have some fun. This should be a little bit of a kick. Tell me where you're at. I just left Miami yesterday. I was there the last, I don't even know how long, month or so. Queens, Connecticut. There's more Miami. So I was in Hollywood Beach, Poconos, Denver area, Central Massachusetts, Amarillo, Fairfax, Chandler, Dallas, Worth, Los Angeles, uh, Santa Barbara, Turner, Washington, Anchorage, Orlando, North Dakota. I just want you guys to get an idea. North Carolina, Wilmington, Portland, Oregon. Look at that. Princeton, New Jersey, Chicago, more Miami, Nevada City, Houston. Aloha from Maui. You heard me right here. Nashville, Minnesota, Texas, San Diego, Orlando, Newark. I got to say, my, my my wife, so many friends down in Miami because she lived there for quite a while. 
And uh, if you've never been to the Yellow Green Farmer's Market in, uh, it's either in Dania Beach or in Hollywood, go. It's really, really cool. So if you need an excuse, and the other thing to do, if you like fishing, is go after the peacock bass on the inland waterways. Those things are beautiful and they fight really hard too. Anyway, so you get to learn lots. It was, it was a blast. Can you go down there and hang out? And then uh, uh, my ex-partner, Greg Boots, who still works with us as a financial advisor. He's really awesome. He's also down there. He's in Sunny Isles, so we went and hung out with him too. So he and his wife were really nice. So it was fun. We're going to get him on so we can go over financial services one of these days. All right, let's go to I like Miami Beach. Key West is the best. Went down to Key West. Beautiful. And uh, what's the one? There's just so many. Like uh, Key Largo is great when you first get in there. But going out to the end and seeing the, uh, the summer White House was pretty cool. But anyway, I digress. On. What is the process for nonprofit to invest in a syndication? We'll go over that one. I just got a home loan on my home, $1.5 million, and plan to use the $600,000 above my prior $900,000 loan in my house uh, for a flipping business as capital for that. May I write off the interest and amount to over $1 million on my S-Corp for house flips? How do I do that? Should I pay interest on them out from my S-Corp separately? So we will get into all of that. You're going to enjoy that one, right? Because mm-hmm. we're going to give them some bad news. Yeah. What are the pros and cons of moving a company to Puerto Rico for tax planning purposes? That's always, I think that's come up now twice this year. It's always interesting to see people start saying, oh, man, they're talking about raising taxes. Maybe I'll go to Puerto Rico. No. Right. Are life insurance proceeds taxable if a revocable living trust is the beneficiary? We'll go over that. Uh, I am planning to take over the property management of my rental property, which is in the same city I live in, and I have an LLC taxes and S-Corp in which to conduct the business of property management. Would the tenant pay the monthly rental check in the name of the S-Corp so the S-Corp can take out a management fee and then give the remainder to the owner of the property, which is currently in my personal name? So we'll get through all of that. We, we're getting all good questions today. I always like thoughtful, kind of longer questions. If I put our personal bank accounts and investment accounts into a revocable living trust, must we change the owner's name on the bank account for our name, from our name to the name of the trust to avoid probate? Or can the trust be presented to the bank after our death to transfer the account owner to the name of the trust? Really good question. Important question. So we'll answer that one. I am buying property in Arkansas in my name, Putting into an LLC, the LLC we put inside of a Wyoming LLC. How do I pay tax? How do I pay my California taxes properly since I'm in California with these other LLCs? Also, can I move my California properties to an out-of-state LLC to reduce taxes? So we'll go over that because it's kind of fun. At the exit of a real estate syndication, can suspended passive losses be released to offset the twelve thirty-one gain, the capital gain, right? Mm-hmm. I'm getting conflicting answers from my accountant and other tax professionals. So we will straighten you out. I have been told that as a land flipper, I would not be considered a dealer by the IRS like I would be if I was house flipping, has to be a residential dwelling or something. Do you agree? Interesting question. Uh, is tuition for professional learning deductible? Can I buy an Airbnb with money inside and outside of an IRA? So I think I know what that means. I'm selling my primary residence house and will close 7-23-21. So this week, I'm not buying a new house immediately. How long do I have to reinvest? Do I need to keep the funds separate? Can I use them in the interim to either invest or pay off debt, then later roll over the full amount to a new house? That's a really good question. We'll go over that. I'm setting up a C-Corp, which will lease my single-family residential, single-family residential rental. Can my C-Corp rent out the house, but I keep the garage for storing parts, tools, and paperwork? Lots of questions today. So let's dive in. Sometimes I grab too many questions. Because I like them. I sit there and I'm like, there's so many. What is the process for a nonprofit to invest in a syndication? It's going to really depend on whether they require you to be an accredited investor or not. If they are your nonprofit's going to have to have assets of $5 million to be considered an accredited investor. Mm-hmm. If, they're, if they're not requiring that accreditation, uh, do you see any issues with that? Or 
No. So syndication is a fancy way of saying a private investment. And if it's a reg D offering, which means it's not public, then the question is, what section is it put under? So, so some sections you can have non-accredited investors and accredited investors, somebody with enough asset to where they're considered uh, not as risky or protected as, as, as Joe Public. So the, the million dollar mark is for individuals. So like if I was to in, be an accredited investor as an individual, I have to have assets in excess of $1 million, excluding my personal residence. So I actually have to have other assets. They, they're smart on that because it used to include your residence. Yep. People would get themselves in hot water all the time. So if this is a syndication that is just private, like, hey, I want to partner up on a property. Yeah, you can do it as long as it's passive. If it's active, then you have something called a business income tax. If there's a bunch of debt, you have potential for debt, unrelated debt financed income, yep. I believe you might be looking at. But let's just assume this is passive investments and it's for accredited investors, your typical syndication, then as long as the charity qualifies as, a, as an accredited investor, yeah, can invest. The question is, what is it using the money that it's being generated from? Is it using it for its charitable purpose? You know, so you can always do passive investments in a charity. California Teachers Union is a great example of, you know, they invest in real estate all over the place, but they're using it for their purpose, which is the retirement accounts for the teachers. So yeah, you can absolutely do it. And the question is just making sure, and it's really the promoter's responsibility. Whoever's the syndicator needs to make sure that you qualify. It's not something you would actually have to worry about. So here's a good one. I just got a home loan on my home of $1.5 million. It sounds like they're refied. Mm-hmm. Uh, I plan to use 600000 above the prior 900000 So it sounds like they refied a $900,000 loan and got an extra 600000 that they want to use in the housing flipping. So question number one is, did they just screw themselves up on their mortgage interest deduction? And number two, can they write off amounts that are in excess of the limitation for a personal mortgage? So if you had this loan before 2018, you were allowed to write off interest on loans up to a million dollars or a million point one if you had a home equity loan too. Mm -hmm. When the new law came in, TCJA, Tax and Jobs Act, it lowered that $1 million down to seven fifty dollars and knocked the home equity loans out completely. And it had to be for acquisition indebtedness. Yes. Meaning you used the money on the home. You didn't use it for investments or paying tuition or a vacation. You used it to fix up the house or to buy the house. So my loan I had in 2017 when I went in 2018 came and the laws changed. I was grandfathered in through the old law. Mm-hmm. Once I finance, that's all gone. So this individual here refinanced something that was deductible and just made about, what would it be, about 150000 of it? The interest on $150,000 no longer deductible yeah. because they took it from being a grandfathered amount and made it into a non-grandfathered amount, unfortunately, for the new amount. I don't believe there's an exception. Uh, no. As far as I know, there is no exception. I think it's based on the loan. So you did a new loan, you're toast. If you re- if you just added a line of credit for six hundred thousand, you might be okay. Now, can they use that to invest and do other things? Here, here's what I would do: I would take the six hundred thousand dollars. I would treat that as a loan to my corporation. Mm-hmm. What that allows you to do is to write off your interest expense as investment interest. Perfect. And you're allowed to do that 100% on Schedule E, right? Correct. The corporation would need to make at least interest payments on that loan back to you. So you're going to have... And the corporation's going to write it off. Right. The corporation will write that interest expense off. So mm-hmm. you're going to have interest income coming from the corporation, and you're going to be paying interest personally to the bank on this loan. Which are going to offset themselves, Correct. basically. So you're going to have a zero situation, but you're going to get the deduction inside the corporation. To use against the profits that are being made in the business. Correct. So assuming assuming that you make a, let's say you make $50,000 flipping a house, the corporation paid for $600,000. Let's say that it paid twenty. you You'd have $20,000. let us say you paid twenty. it would offset each other. You'd be able to write off the twenty 
you had, you probably had to make something on it. You got to show that you're making a little bit. So you probably have a little bit of income, but the corporation would get to write off the 20 against the 50 that it made. And when you do this loan to the corporation, you really want to do a promissory note that says how much you're lending, what are the terms of the loan, how much interest, when mm-hmm. payments are expected. So you really set yourself up to, if it's questioned, you say, here's my mm-hmm. document signed by me and the corp. Yeah. Joseph. Sounds like they shouldn't have refied. Yep. <laughs> you should probably have a little chat with your uh, lender to say, did they explain this to you? Because he just took 150 grand and made it. You know, it might be yeah, like you said, you know, they would have been better off getting a six hundred thousand dollar additional line of credit or something much like better that. off. Yeah. yeah, much better off. Or you get a or you get a loan in the name of the corporation and pledge the house of security. So it's still my house, but I could go get a loan in the corporation, mm-hmm. a business loan and say, hey, I'll give you a you know, second on my house. You know, they may or may not be willing to do that. Uh, nowadays with with real estate going through the roof, they might be. But like Wells Fargo just said no more lines of credit. They're a little freaked out, I think. Great questions, by the way. So I like that one. Hey, just a, a mean plug. Your answer to the current question regarding a five. Yeah, we did answer that, Joseph. All right. You you can write off the amount if you loan it to the corporation and the corporation pays you money. You can write it off on your schedule. The amount uh, from 900000 to seven hundred fifty is not deductible. Seven hundred fifty thousand dollars of the mortgages is still deductible. So here we go. Uh, plugging Infinity Investing. This is fun. So you know, Joseph, all right, we just answered all this. Right? If the court pays you interest, don't you have to pay tax? Yes, but you write it off against the amount of interest you are paying. Corporation pays you ten thousand. You're paying ten thousand in interest. It's zero. Corporation still gets its deduction. So anyway, that's what about, what about Infinity? Infinity? I don't know. I still answer the questions that go in chat, even if they were sleeping during the answer. That's me being mean. All right. Infinity investing, how the rich get richer. Now you could do that. Hey, we hit number one on a few different lists. My personal favorite was financial engineering. I'm like, what is that? But that's cool. It's over a hundred ratings now. We've got tons of five star. It's fun. And you can join for free if you want to go to infinityinvesting.com. We have three trading rooms a week now that are free, right? You can go in there and learn how to trade. Even in this crazy market, it's the time to do it. I'm not going to make you guys go through all the, the comments that people put in there, but I put up all of them. Uh, you can go read them because they're on Amazon. And we have about Divine Voice people and Hall of Fame reviewers and stuff. Like, It's not us. <laughs> it's not just us. I'm sure we have some employees, Matt out there, who give comments, which is fine. But uh, this is, you know, people that are actually buying it and that are not us. It's always more fun that way. What are the pros and cons of moving a company to Puerto Rico for tax planning purposes? I do not focus much on Puerto Rico. Typically, if we have clients doing business in Puerto Rico, we prefer that they use Puerto Rican Mm -hmm. CPAs. Because it's all in Spanish. (laughs) One of the big things is you have to be a bona fide resident in Puerto Rico to get any benefit at all. IRS has announced that they're going to start checking that. Yeah. yeah they it, have a campaign that they started in January, I believe. Yeah. And somebody says, is this like Act 60? I think Act 60 is for the business side. Yeah. It's a, there's another act for the individual side, which is, hey, I have to actually reside there. And then the business side is... You have to have a bona fide I have to have office. a bona fide... Yeah. And I have... Like for an individual, I think you have to give $5,000 is a charitable donation to a local charity. And you got to be there uh, more than half the days. So whatever it is, 163 days, you have to be physically present on the island. Then you get exempt for your Puerto Rican income. But a lot of people, what they do is they, let's say they have $10 million of gain on some stock. They move to Puerto Rico and they're like, ah, now I won't pay tax on it. No, that is not true. You will pay U.S. tax on the amount of appreciation as of the date that you moved. All that will still be taxable, but your Puerto Rican income will not be taxable for dividends and interest. For regular income, it is taxable. And if you have a business, there's lots of exclusions. I think it's a 4% tax. If it has employees in a physical location, an actual office, and it's transacting business out of Puerto Rico, then your Puerto Rican income can be subject to, like, I think it's 4% tax. And uh, that's kind of fun. 
Yeah, I know some of the best incentives were actually focused on industries. Pharmaceuticals was a big one. Mm-hmm. Uh, That's huge there. The yeah. Where they're, where they're actually trying to get people in to Puerto Rico who are actually exporting goods outside of Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. Uh, There's a lot of stuff they want. They want you know, professional services. They want all that stuff. Somebody says, my daughter is approved for option trading and she is making gains. Income, I am not a, approved by any brokers. Can she trade for me and I pay the tax on the gains? No. Or can I just pay the tax on the gains she makes at 20% have the tax withheld and pay her? You can gift her. So um, they're pretty close to it, actually. Literally, Ron, you're probably two miles away from where we're sitting right now. So yeah, so if you have a child, it's, it's probably gonna be better for them to pay the tax anyway and just give you the money. You don't wanna pay tax at your rate if you're in the higher tax bracket. So you just say, hey, could you trade my money? Your daughter trades your money and then just gives you some. She's not gonna take a deduction for it. She would just recognize it as income and she can gift you up to $15,000 a year. So that's all you're doing. So you just say, hey, I'll give you some money to, to run. Or you just say, hey, trade my money. And she's not giving you anything other than she gets the income. You say, here, trade, trade this. Mm-hmm. It's almost like a loan. And getting from approved to trade options is fairly easy. Mm-hmm. It's just a matter of saying, yes, I've done this or that. If you're talking about trading on margin or trading futures or contracts, things of that nature, commodities, it, it's much more difficult. But options are usually pretty easy experience. They just don't want want you to go crazy. Uh, And then different companies are easier. Like there's lots of companies, uh, Thinkorswim and some others Mm -hmm. that, you know, again, they're going to be pretty light requirements. Others might be really difficult. Are life insurance proceeds taxable if a revocable trust is the beneficiary? My answer is no. How I would do it this way. So life insurance proceeds in general, if you did not deduct the premiums mm-hmm. are not taxable. So almost all life insurance proceeds are you and me paying for life insurance. And it was the proceeds are not taxable to the beneficiary. If a living trust is a beneficiary, it's not a taxable entity as long as it's giving it out to the beneficiaries. So I'm not personally like, unless you have hesitation giving somebody a bunch of cash, I'm probably going to say like, hey, I'll have the proceeds go to like a spouse or something like that. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, I don't mind it going into the living trust if I have a whole bunch of beneficiaries that I don't want to screw up by giving them a bunch of cash. Thoughts on, and I know we don't do this, but like have an, if you have a lot of insurance, like a life insurance trust or... Mm-hmm. That's exactly what you do. So to create a irrevocable trust to get it out of their state. So let's say, like we haven't seen this a lot, when I started practicing, the state tax exclusion was 600000 Now it's $11.8 mm-hmm. million and it's portable. I can, husband and wife can, can double up. But it's to be like, oh, shoot, most of, the, most of the insurance proceeds are going to be taxable if it's part of my estate. So we do an irrevocable life insurance to get it out of the estate. People still do that. And that way, again, it goes to beneficiaries, kids, gets it out of my estate. But that's all, the, that's all a living trust really is. During your lifetime, it's revocable, but once you die, it's irrevocable. And it's the same thing. Yeah. Now those proceeds are being held for the use of the beneficiaries. Yeah. Now we just talked about insurance not being taxable and insurance being taxed. But when we say it's not taxed, if it's not taxed as income, right? it's not taxed as income. So the living trust would not pay tax on it, even if it went into trust for the benefit beneficiaries. That life insurance is not going to be taxable. But when you pass away and it's included in your state, it could be taxes for, part for of your state. state tax, right? Exactly. So it used to be that we'd say, like, gosh, who's the major beneficiary of life insurance proceeds? Yes. A big one was Uncle Sam, because you'd always be, you got a million dollars of life insurance, you're paying about 160000 in tax. So whew. let's see. I'm planning to take over the property management of my rental property, which is in the same city I live in. And I have an LLC tax as an escort, which you conduct the business of property management. Would the tenant pay their monthly check in the name of the escort? So the escort can take out the management fee and then give the remainder to the owner of the property, which is currently in my personal name. Yeah, that's typically what happens if you have a third party running your property management. If they're writing a check to that property manager, mm-hmm. they're taking their cut, usually 10%, and distributing the rest to you. Now, they may be also 
be paying certain expenses like repairs. Some of them pay taxes and, and different things. Uh, HOA fees is one that I see a lot. But yeah, that's a, that, that's a pretty common way to do it. The other way you could do it is the reverse of this is have it to you, and then you pay the S corporation the management fee for any proceeds. Yeah, I'm going to give you guys a big caveat, though. Do not own your real estate in your name because that tenant, one slip and fall, one discrimination claim, one accusation against any of your agents, you know, they burn the place down because they, because they, they disabled your smoke detectors or whatever. Mm-hmm. They allege that you have mold, which I've actually seen that suck up more money than just about anything. It's not actual mold. It's the allegations of mold. Just, just they feel like trying to hit you like a pinata because it's generally not going to be covered under your insurance. If they just want to mess with you, do not own the real estate in your name, put it in an LLC. That said, no matter what, I would rather it go through a property management company. So long as that property management company does not have a whole bunch of money in it. Like if you have an S corp to do the property management, as long as that's all it does and you're distributing the money out of it, I'm cool. But if it's doing your other business, if it holds other assets, don't do that because you're just asking because you're going to get sued if that tenant gets mad. They sue the property manager. And if you're the owner individually and that S-Corp is the manager, you're both getting sued. So I would separate that property into an LLC and make sure that that, uh, that, that S-Corp is or the LLC taxed as an S-Corp is, is receiving those funds. And yeah, I, I'd rather the, the this is an important distinction here. Don't let the tenant know that you own the property. Just say you work for the property manager and boy, they're jerks and just be like, I'm on your side because uh, no good will come out of that. Unfortunately, you know, but say there's no good deed that goes unpunished. You got to be a little careful about what information you give. So somebody decides that they, that you might be wealthy. It doesn't take a piece out of you. How to win in shared housing investing. So I'm teaching a class with Diego Milo on uh, on Saturday and also some of the principals at uh, PadSplit. This is going to be really interesting. PadSplit's a, a tech startup that's been around for a little bit, and they and they are a, a way for people to to rent not full houses but a piece of a house. You know, so it's basically be like Airbnb on steroids. But uh, if you haven't heard me before, I'm a big believer that low income housing and moderate income housing has not been built sufficiently over the last twelve years to keep up with the demand and, and, and it's backed up with a lot of data. I'm not the only one who feels this way. Uh, anybody who has teenaged or you know younger adult kids, the millennials is feeling this right now because it's so flipping expensive to get an apartment or a home. And so they're starting to do basically universities, but they're doing it for everybody. And so great concept and they have a, a, a software component that works really well. And we've been building houses for this specific type of investment. And so we call it a, uh, a build, a rent, repeat, or I sometimes call it the Bieber, buy, build, rent, repeat. Some people put the rehab uh, or refinance in there as well. So you can have a whole bunch of R's. But I like the, 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 the you know, to buy it, build it, rent it out, and then go repeat that same process. And right now, materials are more expensive than just about any point. We've had a massive drop since, since I think it was March where we were really peaking out. Mm-hmm. But it's still, it's really difficult to find materials. And there's the housing, uh, the building of housing has not kept up with the demand. And that's why we're seeing prices go through the roof. We're seeing cheap money. We're seeing the Fed print a lot of money. And real estate's becoming an area uh, of safety for a lot of folks. And uh, it's just one of those things. So it, this is if you're interested at all in real estate, you want to see what's, what's working for some pretty great guys. Yes, there's a ton of tax advantages for investors. It's just like investing in multifamily, except instead of having a whole bunch of apartments, you have a single house with five units. And you can build it. Uh, Diego's a builder, so he buys the land. He will sell the ability to buy the project. He'll build it for you with all the contractors or they'll work with contractors to oversee the build. But it's just putting some things out there that are different than you've probably heard. 
we've done a lot of shared housing in the in the philanthropic area where we do halfway houses, we do clean and sober living, we do transitional housing for nonviolent offenders that are in jail. Done all these things, but it comes down to, hey, what about just in general? Are there people that need to rent these? And yeah, you could rent a room out, you could rent five rooms and a house at seven fifty a pop or whatever it is. And, uh, and it, it end, the numbers end up working really well and you can still accelerate depreciation. You can still do all those, but it's building specifically for that concept. And, uh, I find it, uh, really amazing. Uh, it's cool. It's really cool. ABA.link forward slash CO. Free. So come, come and join us. Like, you know, if, if nothing else, stick your nose under the, the tent and see whether you like what you see. Uh, but it's very innovative. It's different. It's one of our core values here is we try to, we always want to be looking and saying what's coming up. And right now I think it's manufactured housing. I think a lot of it is, is, is you see the tiny homes, you see the container homes, you see 3d printing, you see all these different methods to try to address the same issue. And what I've seen over and over again is that, is that the shared housing is going to give you a great return and that you could own these things pretty much straight out without going into massive amounts of debt. And uh, you'd be shocked at what you can build. We're still, we're still seeing building being done at 100, under 100 bucks a foot because you're building it specifically for this purpose. So you're not taking an old house and rehabilitating it, although you certainly can. You're building the house from the floor up uh, specifically for this purpose, much like student housing. We'll make a fortune in student housing because you'll build it like a quad with four you know, uh, sleeping units with a common area that's basically bomb-proof so that they can't screw it up. And those things are cash flow machines. So we're just going to do the same thing. Uh, can you do accelerated cost segregation? Yes. And single family residents? Yes, you certainly can, Gregory. And we do. All right. If we put our personal bank accounts and investment accounts into our revocable living trust, must we change the owner's name of the bank account from our name to the name of the trust to avoid probate? Or can the trust be presented to the bank after our death to transfer the account owner to the name of the trust? No, you want to go to the bank and tell them that you're putting your personal bank accounts into your uh, revocable trust. There's a little paperwork to fill out, uh, but it's, it's, again, pretty simple to do this. Yeah, so the, the only time, yeah, so Jeff's 100% correct. When oh, you set up a trust, oh, okay. I know, I could give you a but. I'm just, I was thinking of that, like, oh man, sometimes I sucker Jeff into these. I pick questions that are hard, and I'm like, <laughs> I know how he's going to answer. There's always a nuance, right? No. So with a, with a living trust, you're entering into a contract and anything that's in that agreement does not need to have a third party sign off and transfer ownership. So for example, if I died and I was leaving it to Jeff, but it, it's in my name and the only writing is a will that says, give it to Jeff. Jeff has to go to court, get a court to have a judge sign off to say, hey, whoever is holding this asset. So let's say it's a county to transfer that asset to Jeff. They need a court order that says to do it. If the bank does not know that that bank account is held in the name of the trust, Jeff's still going to have to go do that with the exception of if there's a paid on death that says the living trust. That's the only exception mm -hmm. I can think of. You may have a hey, paid on death, give it to the the trust, but that's just silly. Why not just put it in the name of the living trust? Uh, what about joint ownership accounts? Joint ownership could be another one. So if we put our personal bank accounts, so they said accounts and investment accounts into a revocable trust, and we change the owner's name from our name to the trust to avoid probate, then you're good. But let's say it's in your name. So let's say it's Jeff and we're not going to give you a spouse right now. Should we give you a spouse? No. Okay. We won't tempt fate, but let's say, uh, let's say it's John and Sally joint tenants, John passes, it's, it's in Sally's name because there's already something. Or if there's a paid on death and it's me and Jeff and I have Toby's name, but paid on death to Jeff, then it's going to Jeff. But that's where it stopped. It's still going to eventually have to be probated. If it's in a trust, the trust just automatically says during my lifetime, let's say it's the, the Toby Mathis trust by its trustee, Toby Mathis. If Toby Mathis dies, change the trustee to Jeff. Then Jeff goes in there. The name on the account is still the Toby Mathis Trust. And by the way, this may not show up on a check. It may just say Toby Mathis, right? Jeff comes in there and says, I'm the new trustee. 
they'll more than likely put the Toby Mathis Trust by its trustee, Jeff Webb. And then Jeff takes over. My trust does not have to distribute. I can have that trust be valid for another 300 years if I want to and say, hey, just pay out to my daughter whenever she needs money or pay out to my descendants for health, education, maintenance, and support just in case they need it. And I could just have it sit there. And Jeff oversees it. That's all we have to do. So from a practical point of view, I don't have any problems with savings accounts, investment accounts, so forth, but that personal checking account that you're writing checks out and paying your bills with, have you seen any issues with that when you, you put that trust name on there? Only Some of the smaller banks will want to put the trust name on it, but most major banks, they just take, your, usually you're putting what's a declaration of trustee or the certification of trust. And they just say, hey, can we see that document? So they know what's the legal name because it's going to be the Toby Mathis Trust dated July 20th, 2021 by its trustee, Toby Mathis, right? And they're going to put that in there as the legal title holder. And now they know that I don't own it as an individual anymore. I own it as the trustee on behalf of the trust. And no, I don't own it as the trustee. Is that I, I am the trustee and the owner is actually the Toby Mathis Living Trust dated July 20th, 2021. I think that's today. But whatever the date is that you sign it. So anyway, good question. Important question. You could do a living trust. Oh, by the way, let's do a quick caveat. If you do a living trust and you forget to transfer assets into it, you should have a pour-over will. And the pour-over will says the sole beneficiary of my estate is the living trust. So you're you're still gonna be okay. What I hate is or when they do a will, because you're guaranteed to go into probate. And if there's one thing that causes pain in this world, it's probate. All right, I'm buying property in I think it's Arkansas, yeah. is there, uh, in my name, putting in an LLC, and the LLC will be put inside a Wyoming LLC. How do I pay my California taxes? <laughs> See these other people are thinking, you know. Maybe I'm the weird one. Anyway, so this is somebody who lives in, this is somebody who is uh, living in California and rightly so, they realize, hey, don't I have to pay taxes even if I own out-of-state LLCs? Kind of. California knows about it for sure. <laughs> I don't like California taxing your out-of-state LLCs, but technically they can. If you have a single member LLC owned outside the state, it's what, a 558 form or 585? 568. 568. It's, an, it's a foreign LLC, and they think you're doing business by virtue of having the member in California. I think they lose that. I think they're going to lose that. But California always loses its cases, and it doesn't stem from making a slight variance and continuing to try to enforce it. So what we do is we, we want to make sure that that Wyoming LLC is not owned by you. Make sure it's owned by a trust. And we actually won that on audit. So I could say that definitively, that if you want to avoid the $800 tax, that's one way to do it. The other way to do it is to forego the Wyoming LLC and go with a Wyoming statutory trust. That's another way you could defeat it because the statutory trust has, uh, as long as you don't have California properties, that may be the way to go. So you can get away from having to worry about that LLC. So there are ways to, it to reduce the franchise tax. That's what it's going to uh, prevent. And I hope ordered that one. You want to hit that one? Does that also work for his California properties? California properties, we'd want to make sure they're in land trust and use Wyoming statutory trust to be the holders because the statutory trust has been deemed to be, uh, forget the term, the legal term, but it's not subject to the $800 franchise tax. Let's see. Somebody says, I am married. Sorry, guys, I'm going to go to a question and answer. I am married and we have a living trust and well. Would there be any issues to consider if I purchase investment property titled in my name and eventually quick claim it to an LLC in the state of the property? Well, you'd want to make sure that LLC is owned by your living trust or that it's owned by an entity owned by the trust. When you take individually, Greg, uh, what I would probably do is take it at, in your name. I'm not going to say your name out because it's, it's, I'm just going to say, uh, let's say, say John Smith. You take it as John Smith trustee and use the name of your living trust if that's what you're going to do. That way, if something happens to you in the interim, you're not probating in that state because here's how bad it is. You have to probate in every state you own real estate if it's owned in your name. So if I own property in California, Nevada, and Washington, 
and I pass away, and it's all in my individual name, not in a living trust, I have to open probates to get a court order to change the title on that property in all three states. So I have to probate in Washington, Nevada, and California. And you don't want to do that to your family uh, or to your spouse. So that would be the, the better thing. Hey, by the way, if you like getting lots of weird questions and answers, and you like YouTube especially, we have a really great YouTube channel, by all means, follow us on social media, aba.link, and then forward slash any of the major social media, whether it be Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, YouTube, or Facebook, you can get to us. We do, uh, we're always posting these up. We also have podcasts. You can go in there and and get uh, replays of these Tax Tuesdays. We've done well over 100 of them. I forget how many we've done, but it's lots of fun. I was just trying to think of how many we've done, but yeah, I know. It's I remember we fun. hit 100 last year sometime. So the most we could have done is what, 26 since then? 52. I don't remember when we did 100. Patty, you remember when we did 100? I remember we, I think we drank that day. <laughs> Probably. What? Patty? Nothing. I can hear you, cat. <laughs> Are you drinking? Do you know which session we're in now? <laughs> we lost her. <laughs> it was bound to happen. She's, she's cackling. All right. At the exit of a real estate syndication, can suspended passive losses be released to offset 1231 gain? We got like a bunch of accountants out there answering questions or asking questions. I am getting conflicting answers from my accountant and other tax professionals. Let's say you, Jeff. Here's how that works when you, whether it's a real estate syndication or any passive property. Mm -hmm. When you sell the property or when you sell your interest in the property, 100% disposition. You release all those losses. They're no longer passive. They're just ordinary losses. loss. Yeah. You can take them against your W-2 income. So yes, it does offset the 1231 gain. But here's another part of that. That 1231 gain is considered passive also. So if you have other losses, like you have two syndications, the sale of one syndication could actually free up losses in the other syndication from the gain from selling the property. Explain. So let's say uh, I have a property that uh, I sold and made $50,000 of capital gain on. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a passive activity. It was an investment. That $50,000 is passive in itself, even though it's capital gain. Mm -hmm. And what do we need to passive losses? And that's passive income. Mm -hmm. Well, that $50,000 gain is income that I can use to offset other passive losses. Mm -hmm. So it'll free up. Uh, it'll free up fifty thousand dollars worth of loss. They'll offset, and you won't recognize any gain or loss at that point. Yeah. So I don't know what your accountants are getting at. So I, they may be thinking, what if the syndication itself sells a piece of real estate? Would it release your your suspended losses? I don't think it does. I think you have to liquidate the syndication. You have to liquidate your interest in the syndication. Or the syndication has to has to shut down, sell off all of its assets. Same thing. Mm -hmm. Then all of your passive loss carry forwards get released. Now the other way to get rid of passive losses is you know you could either be an active participant in real estate who makes less than a hundred thousand, really less than one hundred fifty. It phases out, but you can take up to twenty five thousand dollars of loss if you actively participate in your real estate, which means you manage the manager, you hire the manager, or in this case, it's a syndication. They might allow you, uh, or you're a real estate professional and you qualify under 460, 469C7, I think it is, uh, as a real estate professional. I'm not going to get into all that now. We've gone over it many, many times on this show. So then it becomes just ordinary loss. So there, there's other ways. Just assume you're passive and you have a bunch of car loss carry for it and they, they sell everything in the real estate syndication. There's no question those losses are released. I don't know why they're hedging. Do you think there's any reason why they would hedge? No. Yeah. So it did, they, they may just not know. All right. This is a fun one. I have been told that as a land flipper, I would not be considered a dealer by the IRS like I would if I was house flipping, that there has to be a residential dwelling or something. Do you agree? Not exactly. By saying you're a land flipper, it's... Maybe just the wording, but it kind of indicates that you're doing something to the land. You're not just buying a large parcel, 
parceling, dividing it up, and then selling off smaller parcels. Once you start to say, uh, what, what's the term? Once you pick Improving. up, a sh- once you pick up a shovel and move dirt, you're you're creating the the roads, the sewer lines. You're doing all that. Right. You're adding the uh, the improvements on the property, even though you're not putting physical structures on the property. You're you're doing all the engineering. So so it's not just having a, a building on it. Uh, you start cutting trees, clearing land, moving dirt, putting in infrastructure. So, all that's going to disqualify you from this. Subdividing. Subdividing. It's going to yeah. disqualify you from these rules. Yeah. So if you buy property to sell it, you're a dealer. If you buy property to hold it for a long term, you're an investor. And so there is a rule on land that says if you're doing less than uh, one continuous parcel or if it's two parcels and they're separated by a road or whatever, they're going to consider it one parcel. But you submit it and you sell off less than five of the parcels when you subdivide it, that you're still an investor, even though you did that. That they say, okay, that's not rising to the level. But if you improve that property at all, you're toast. And if you buy that property with the intent to sell it, you're toast. You're still you're still a flipper. And then no, you don't get things like installment sales. And so like I always see this. In fact, this question actually had a there was two people that asked almost the same question and they referenced a code provision. 430, 453, that's the installment sale. And like, uh, there was a couple. And in both cases, it was like, there's nothing new to these rules. It's still very clear. If you buy it to sell it, period, you're a dealer. If you buy it and do something to it, they have a minimum level where they said, you're not a dealer just because you did this. From what I've seen, this exception was really devised for people mama's got this property she she's got this field that she doesn't use you have to hold this thing for five years i think you actually have to it's not only the subdivided but you held that thing for five years so if you're a flipper you're buying it and you're selling it and you think that's gonna you're not so you're absolutely right because mama gets it and says oh what am i going to do with this property and somebody says let's subdivide it and sell off some of the the uh, parcels just because you did that, you could have just triggered dealer status on it. And now all of that gain would be ordinary. You don't have capital gains on it anymore. And somebody who inherited it or something like that could be really, really, really bad. Yeah, somebody who's really, we have 16 lands. You got to be careful. Now, there is a way around this. And the way around it, according to the accounting journals and us, is you sell it unit to a corporation at fair market value. So you have capital gains and everything else. And then the corporation does all the subdividing and the improvement and would recognize gain on that portion. There's no way around that otherwise. They say that when you're improving something, in the case of the land and you're, you're doing it to sell it, you're going uh, to have ordinary taxation because it's your sweat of the brow. And then if you buy and if you're uh, the, the 453 Installment sale is when you get payments over two tax years or more. If you're a dealer, you don't get you don't get to use that. If you're a trader business, you don't get to use that. And so all they were pointing to is a sister section that says, "Hey, if you're if your land, even though you're subdividing this, it you you can you can do the uh, the installment sale on that portion." But they're saying it's not dealer property. That's all they're doing. So it's not going to help you at all in this particular case. So as in all things, the, the issue isn't uh, can I, it's how can I. And so if you're trying to relinquish a property and you don't want to get killed in, in tax, talk to the tax professionals before you sell, mm-hmm. not after, right? Because we want to make sure that we're doing things appropriately to minimize your tax burden and to maximize the benefit that you receive. All right. So there's a few more questions. I'm not going to dive into too many questions because I've been long-winded today. Is tuition for professional learning deductible? If we're talking about CPE, CME, CLE, yeah, it certainly is deductible. But we use the word tuition, and that often indicates college or something of that nature where we're learning something new. If you're learning something that's a new career path, that is not deductible. If I'm bettering a skill that I already have, Mm -hmm. 100%, you can write it off. If it is required, like 
Jeff is a CPA and I'm, a, and I'm an attorney. I have to do continuing legal, legal education. You have to do continuing education for accountants. That's deductible. If Jeff decides he wants to become a landscaper, can he deduct the landscaping business education? No. If he decides he's going to go to school to become a teacher, can he deduct that? No. Is it professional learning? Yeah, but it's not bettering his skill in his existing business. Now, if Jeff is here and our business, like Anderson, we're education folks. So if Jeff says, hey, I want to go and learn to be a better teacher. Yeah, that would be something skill. And it doesn't matter whether it brings him a new degree or not. What matters is what's the purpose of getting that education? And so I use the example when I was at Seattle U as an undergrad, I was sitting there with a bunch of Boeing guys that were getting their MBAs. Boeing was paying for their tuition. They were deducting because they were engineers that were learning business management skills. Me as a student, I couldn't deduct mine because I was an employed and it wasn't helping me out. It was giving me a new career. So one is, it's the same education, same class thing. For one person, it's deductible. For somebody else, it's not. So it doesn't matter what the education is. What matters is what is it for? Okay, I'll throw you a curveball. Mm-hmm. Let's say I've been a CPA for, we'll just say it for a long time. And I decide I want to become a certified financial planner. Mm-hmm. Is the coursework for that still fall under a deductible or have I changed courses? I think you've changed courses or the IRS would say you probably changed courses because it's preparing you for a new degree or for a new career. Okay. Now I I pretty much agree with that. Yeah. But what if, what about a CPA who starts, who signs up with LPL or one of these others and starts having professional services and then says, Hey, you know what? I want to be a CFP. Now it's part of your practice and it's facts and circumstance. Like, so this is one of those things where, you talk to the accountant beforehand. So you talk to Jeff saying, how do I make it deductible? You need to do this, this, and this. And then you do those things and it's deductible. Otherwise, don't do it after the fact. That's how you get in trouble. Don't do that. All right. Can I buy an Airbnb with money inside and outside of an IRA? Yes, you can. Ooh, I thought I was a disqualified person. Well, what I would do in this situation is I would form a partnership with myself and my, between myself and my IRA. You can do that. Yeah. <laughs> yes, you can start up any new business with, a, with your IRA. But, but what if I set it up and I need more money? Uh, that's, that's a uh, conundrum. Because now you're in a prohibited transaction. Correct. So when you set up a partnership like this, the IRA needs to put in its share. You need to put in your share. It's got to be prorated for your ownership. You're, you're toast. If you're, dis, if you're a disqualified party, you can't do anything else. Nor can you go pick up a hammer and start whacking away at the, with the Airbnb. I'm going to fix all the windows. Nope. Yep. Can't do that. You can't do that. Partnership's got to hire them. It's got to be equal. When you close, everything's got to be equal. You can't do anything to benefit your IRA at the expense of yourself. Now, a couple of things that can go wrong with this situation is, one, you can't have a mortgage on property you bought, well, you, or the you, IRAs could be subject to you, Jeff. Well, the IRA could, so is there a way around that, Jeff? Remember, we said there's rules, but then you say, how do I avoid UDFI, unrelated debt finance income? I don't know, Toby. 401k. Roll your IRA oh, into a 401k and it's not subject to the UDFI. When I thought I saw this question, I actually thought about that. Yeah. The other thing you do is, hey, how much money do you actually need so you could partner? If it's, hey, husband and wife, 100 grand, you know, we're going to put in 100 grand and we're going to get a loan. Don't do it with the 401k or the IRA. Put in a 401k and borrow the money out if you need to. Now, my other issue with this is that when does the Airbnb stop becoming a rental and become a trader business. You're going to have unrelated, or you're going to have UBIT mm-hmm. if there's an IRA involved and the Airbnb business is seven days or less or 30 days or less with substantial services or more than 30 days with, with, with lots of extraordinary services, in which case that IRA is now in business and an active business and it's going to have to pay tax on something called unrelated business income tax. And unfortunately, a 401k doesn't fix that part of it. Yeah. And if you want to get away from that, then what you end up doing is leasing somebody who's running an Airbnb business. And I don't even think you could do this to yourself because I think you'd still be a disqualified uh, party. So you would put the property, Airbnb into a property, and then you'd lease it 
on a month to month basis to a super host or somebody who wants it, that's going to basically lease it long, but rent it short. So you think even your corporation, your corporation would be disqualified? I would be, I'd have to really dig into that one, but I think it, it would be irresponsible to do that. Cause I think you're setting yourself up for problems because you're going to have a continuing lease between your, that company and, and you. I think it's disqualified. And sometimes IRS looks at these transactions and says, hey, I see what you're doing here. And they say, not allowed. All right. Subscribe to Anderson, the newest updates. You can go on there and, and you can check out Clint, myself, Carl, P. Jeff, you're probably on there. Troy's on there. Everybody and their mother's on there now because we're putting a ton of content out because there's so many changes going on and because there's a lot of misinformation out there. We've been talking to Facebook to take it all down. Just kidding. Can't help it. We've been talking with Facebook about troublesome posts or Twitter. Is it Twitter or Facebook that they're talking to to try to the troublesome misinformation? I know what you're talking about. I just don't know which one it is. There's a lot of misinformation. All right. I'm selling my primary residence house and will close on 723. So this week, congratulations. I'm not buying a new house immediately. How long do I have to reinvest? Do I need to keep the funds separate? Can I use them in the interim to either invest or pay off debt, then later roll over the amount into a new house? So if you were selling this property on 723 of 1994, all this information would be pertinent. However, in 1995, they changed all the Section 120 rules and came up with the uh, 121 gain exclusion of 250,000 for singles and 500,000 for joint. Jeff likes to point out that he was practicing back in 1995. And the old rules- I wasn't said, even born yet. And the old rules said, as, as long as you uh, bought a new house that was more expensive than your prior house, you could roll all the gain to that. Once you turn, I believe, 55, all the gain is excluded. Don't scramble their brains. So- and, and that's, I hear this question actually fairly often. Those rules no longer apply. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to keep them separate. You don't have to do anything. You get, if you own that property two of the last five years yep. as your primary residence, as a single person, you would get a $250,000 capital gain exclusion. If you were married up to 500,000, and then I'm going to say capital gain exclusion, because you got to look at it and say, was it ever a rental? And if the rental then there's going to be disqualified use or there's going to be recapture of depreciation that is not part of that exclusion. But for the most part, you don't have to do anything. Now, if you did have gain in excess of those exclusion amounts, so let's say you bought a primary residence for 400000 you held on to it, you had a million dollars of gain in your married couple, you would already have a $500,000 exclusion. So 400 plus 500 to 900 you sold it if I said a million dollar gain. So, what would that be for? Uh, did I say $500,000 more? A million dollars. So, yeah, $500,000 a gain. You could do a, what is it called? A qualified opportunity fund yep. and, and invest monies into a qualified opportunity zone, but you're just kicking the can down the, the trail to 2026 when you'd have to recognize it anyway. Yep. But there is a way you'd have to do that within 180 days of the sale. So, we'd have to do it. Yeah, probably January. By the end of January, you'd have to make a qualified opportunity zone fund, put it in there, and then you'd have 108 days to put most of that into a qualified opportunity zone property or properties or business, things that qualify. Hope that answers. You don't have to do anything. Yeah. And if you have a couple hundred thousand dollars again, you've had this for a few years, you're good. Yeah. So when you close on Friday and they hand you a check, that money's yours to do with what you want. Mm -hmm. The one caveat I'm going to throw in there is you probably want to figure out how much gain you have and how much tax the sale of the house is going to cost you, if any, and just put that money aside. Mm -hmm. You're not going to need it until April 15th of 2022, but and enjoy your proceeds. And you know, and you did right by asking a question, but I'd probably actually talk to an accountant just to make sure you figure out because your basis and your improvement value and all these things have to be figured out. Or really, for this one, it would just be the basis, unless you've used it as an investment property. So if you, if you, if this has just been your primary residence, make sure that you're adding in your closing costs and improvements and everything else. You can get an accurate 
idea of what your actual capital gain would be or how much gain you have. And hopefully it's zero. Hopefully you have zero gain and you get to keep all the money. You can do whatever you want with it. You don't have to worry about it. I am setting up a C-Corp, which will lease my single family rental. So you're doing a, you know, it's basically a conflict of interest. So as long as it's at fair market value, you're fine. Can my C-Corp rent out the house, but I keep a garage for storing parts, tools, and paperwork? So can they lease out less than the entire property? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Sometimes we just make this really simple. If you could do it with a third party, you could do it with yourself. So yeah, you could do that. I just think that sounds gross. (laughs) If you could do it with others, Jeff, you could do it all by your lonesome. Anyway, uh, I I struggled a little (laughs) with the wording on this one just to make sure uh, what the C-Corp was actually, if they Mm -hmm. were running the person's you got to make sure it's worthwhile too. So in this particular case, when you're doing a self-rental to the corp, you could also aggregate that activity as one activity if you really want to. Mm -hmm. I don't know exactly how that works with the C-Corp. I think the C-Corp would get the depreciation if you wanted it, right? Yeah, typically with self-rental, so that aren't considered one economic unit. Um, They'd be considered two here. The the losses are limited to the income Mm -hmm. on these self-rentals. Exactly. It would be basically, it'd be like nothing happened, right? It would just be like you wouldn't have income, but you wouldn't have the any loss. It would just be a big old zero. But you can absolutely do that. And you can mm-hmm. keep depreciating the entire thing if you're using garage for business purposes. Mm-hmm. So you're storing tools, parts, and other things. Mm-hmm. You want to look and say, is that part of the, the business, same business? Because then you would just say, hey, let's just lease it all up. I don't have to worry about it yet. Then, yeah, I could use it for the benefit of, but it's, it's leasing the space. So anyway, so yeah, yes, you could do that. Yes, you can keep that. But like in all things tax, it's better to have somebody run the numbers for you and see what fair market rents are and things like that. Because you do have to make sure that it's an arm's length transaction or the IRS could assess income to you if it's below market value and cause you some, some strife there. So you just want to make sure that get a broker opinion or go out there and see what the rents would normally be. Just figure out a per foot or something. All right. You like this sort of content. If you like learning about taxes and you just can't get enough, go to andersonadvisors.com forward slash podcast. Plus there's a whole bunch of other podcasts on there. We, we grab really great folks that are very, have niches that are really great. And it's always fun to, to find people that are experts in their world and, and interview them. And that's what's in our podcast. Plus, recordings of these tax Tuesdays, you can see there's a whole bunch of stuff in there. So there's a, is that Greg on there? Yeah. I see Greg. I see Eric. I see some, some folks that, uh, that we see periodically. You'll see Michael Bowman on there too, as well as uh, a lot of our folks who are, who, who like to talk to folks who have niches, you know? So, and then if you are a platinum member, you can always go in and watch all the replays. And you can really fill yourself up with a bunch of tax knowledge because believe it or not, this is just a sampling. We used to go two and two hours, two and a half hours on these and just kill people. So we're trying to keep it to about an hour so that we don't fry your brain. And then we uh, always cut them up and share them out with you guys. So by all means, if there was anything on this podcast or on this uh, Tax Tuesday that uh, you sat there and said, geez, I don't know if I really understood that, get the recording and go back and find it. And listen to it again. If you have questions you want us to answer, we always grab a sampling uh, from AndersonAdvisors.com. Usually, the last you know fifteen or so that are sitting there, and we grab them and just throw them in. But we answer all the questions. And uh, uh, if you again, if you have very specific questions about your situation, that's not a generic tax question. Then we're going to want you to become platinum. Uh, it's thirty-five bucks a month. And we answer your questions in writing. If it's tax related, all other questions, you can talk to the attorneys and the advisors. There's no cost to that. You can always come to andersonadvisors.com. And then I want to repeat uh, and invite you to this weekend on the shared housing. I'm just going to throw that up there again one more time. If you want to learn about shared housing and tax and asset protection for shared housing, how to make sure that you're putting your real estate in the most tax advantaged structures 
then please come and join us on Saturday. It's absolutely free, nine to five. Usually we're done at nine to, you know, at four o'clock Pacific Standard Time. We give ourselves a little wiggle room there. But um, absolutely fantastic content. I love teaching those. This one's through Infinity Investing. Infinityinvesting.com. Go there. It's free membership. You're going to say, why is everything free? It's because we're growing and planting seeds all the time. And then, you know, we always look at you reap what you sow. So we plant constantly. We're trying to help people make money. The more that we help you make money, hopefully reward us with some of your business at some point. Thank you to Christos, to Ian, to Dana, Elliot, to Patty, to Matthew, to, if I don't want to forget anybody, Powell and, and Troy, you guys did a great job. I can see 165 questions were answered in writing. We're going to keep answering your questions. There's a whole bunch that are coming in. And uh, even though we will end this now and say, thank you guys very much and add the, or end the live stream of the content, uh, we will continue to open those up so you can, so we will say adieu until what, for two more weeks? Two more weeks. And uh, and when we see you again, it'll be kind of fun. We'll, we'll send out always the day before we send out the, or the day of, I get them the day before, and then we send them out. Usually it's late at night, like before midnight going, oh crap, oh crap, oh crap. And we get the questions out that morning. So you always see what's coming up. And uh, we can make sure that if there's anything that tickles your fancy that you're there to, to watch it. But uh, we'll see you in two weeks. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Show notes for links to everything mentioned in this episode can be found on our website at andersonadvisors.com slash podcast. Be sure you subscribe to our podcast. And if you are already a subscriber, please provide us a review of what you thought of this episode. 